Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Deplorable Nation. I'm your host, Deplorable Janet. And today I have a lovely new guest on the show. Been making his rounds on the podcast circuit, been on lots of friends shows here in the past. So I'm excited to have this conversation today because I have some deep questions for you, my dear. Mm, so great. welcome, Mr. Brian Fairchild. How are you? Doing fine, Janet. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. I'm super excited. Now, tell people a little bit about what your career was. Well, I, I was a I was a career CIA officer, a clandestine service officer for 20 mm -hmm. years. Uh, one aspect that your audience might be interested in is uh, how I got there. You know how mm -hmm. I got interested to begin with. Right, right. So when I was about 13 years old. I was in, I lived in Mesa, Arizona, and I don't know if you've ever been in Arizona, Janet, but mm -hmm. I lived Mesa, in Arizona. <laughs> yeah, Mesa, Arizona is hot. You know? I mean, it was like 110 Super degrees. Hot. And hot. <laughs> yes. So at that time in my life, I, I read this book. It was Jack London's uh, Call to the Wild, you know, all mm -hmm. about this, this kid, you know, back in, you know, way back in, in history up in the Klondike with his mush dog and, you know, all right. that sort of thing. And so you know, for a kid sitting, looking out of his window and seeing saguaro cactus, cacti, <clears throat> you know, I, uh, I, I figured, man, I, I got to do something like this. I got to get away. I got to go out. So that's the first time I remember thinking of like leaving home and going out to find adventure, you know, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Right. Then a year later, we moved to uh, Boulder, Colorado, and to a large extent, I got a lot of my dream, you know, fulfilled in Boulder, Colorado. <laughs> That's Mountains quite the uh, and, swing. And, <laughs> and, and, you know, all of that, that kind of stuff. So I, uh, and and then, uh, you know, later on that year, when I was 14, I went to the movies, uh, you know, in Boulder, Colorado, there's the, uh, you know, the Hill area, was the University mm -hmm. Hill area. So they had a movie theater up there, and I went and saw uh, from Russia with Love, which was the very mm -hmm. first James Bond movie. Right. And I got to tell you, Janet, I mean, um, my imagination was just, you know, captured right there. I mean, for me, you know, wanting to look out there and look for adventure. Well, I mean, this movie had it all, right? I mean, it had right. was filmed in Istanbul, Turkey. Foreign languages were being spoken. Cool outfits were being worn. James Bond was a cool spy. And he would, <laughs> he would, he would run around the house and he would check for listening devices and check his lamps and all that kind as, of stuff. As and, he's drinking cocktails. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and as he gets the girl, you know, and right. he always the girl, right? And in this case, it was Romanova, uh, Tatiana Romanova. So, you know, right there, I said, man, that's, that's what I want to do right there. So I'm the kind of guy that when, once I figure something like that out, I mean, I got to know. I got to know right now. What, what's this all about? So I left the movie theater, hightailed it down to the Boulder Public Library, you know, went right to the librarian knowing that I didn't know what I was doing, you know, and I went to her and I said, look, I'm interested in everything I can find, you know, about you know, working for CIA. Can you help me? And she's like, oh, you're such a sweet young man, you know, this sort of thing. <laughs> and she starts laying out, you know, looking in the, the periodicals and all this sort of thing, laying out, uh, you know, articles on CIA and, and, you know, as much as she could find and books from her stacks. But I got to tell you, Janet, there was not one thing back in that time period for 14 year old spy wannabes. So I didn't, I would get all these materials and I started looking in them. And I'm looking for James Bond. It's like, okay, where's that guy? Where's that guy that does that stuff? You know, and I couldn't find them, you know? And so, so I figured, well, 
the only thing I can do now is uh, the next logical step is to write to CIA. You know, I mean, who else is going to tell me? So, <clears throat> so I write to CIA, and I, I didn't. I, I'm embarrassed to say I didn't even really write. I printed to CIA <laughs> right on li <laughs> nine, line line notebook paper with a pencil <clears throat> in all block letters. And I got the, the address for the CIA. I lived in Boulder, Colorado. So I looked in the, the federal pages for the yellow pages and found Central Intelligence Agency and a post office box for uh, Denver, Colorado. So I wrote this, this, uh, this letter and I said, basically, you know, dear CIA, my name is Brian Fairchild. I'm a 14-year-old student in Centennial Junior High School, and I would like to be a spy. You know, can you tell me how to do that? You know, <laughs> regards, Brian Fairchild. And I got a stamp from my mom, put the stamp, uh, stamp on the, en the envelope and, and sent it out. So, you know, that was a good, th that's, that's one of the first lessons in life, too, is to take the shot. You know, so I would, mm -hmm. I would to any of your listeners... The, the moral of that story is don't let people tell you it's silly. Don't let people tell you, oh, they're busy, man. They don't have time for you and stuff. Just right. take the shot, you know. I didn't take the shot with a girl back then. And I, I look back on that, you know, years <laughs> later going, man, you can send a letter to the CIA, but you couldn't even talk to Debbie. But, you know, I mean, still, <clears throat> take the shot. <clears throat> so I had basically forgotten about it. And it had done what I wanted it to because, I, you know, it's sort of like scratching the itch. You know, I had that... Mm -hmm to know and I did whatever I could I took the shot but two weeks later I come back home and there's a letter propped up on my pillow my mom had gotten it from the mailbox and it was you know addressed to me apparently and she had it on my pillow and as soon as I saw I mean I just glanced at it and said you know it had it was in color it was a government envelope that was in color with CIA's name on it in the left hand side you know Central Intelligence Agency Post Office Box whatever Washington DC and it was addressed to Mr. Fairchild. And as soon as I saw that, I thought, oh, oh Janet, I'm in big trouble. Because the CIA is writing to my dad. Because the only Mr. Fairchild I had ever known was my father, right? Nobody ever called me Mr. Fairchild. I mean, it had to be my dad. So I'm thinking they're writing and they're saying, you know, keep your son controlled. You know, I mean, we don't need these block letter, you know, baby letters sent to us about, you know, becoming a spy and stuff. And. So I opened, I better find out how much trouble I'm in. So I, I opened it up and I started reading it. And all of a sudden I realized that it was to me, you know, I was Mr. Fairchild. And for a 14 year old kid, I mean, my, my ego and, and self-respect is shot through the roof. I mean, <laughs> Central Intelligence Agency of the United States government is writing me a letter. You know, I must, I, that, I must be important or something. They wrote me a letter. So I, I read the letter, and it wasn't even a form letter, Janet. I mean, this was a, a well-reasoned, you know, very nice plan, actually. And it was written by a guy by the name of Michael Todorovich. Uh, isn't that the greatest CIA name ever? ever? You know, I mean, I just seen Russian. What's your real name, blood. Michael? <laughs> yeah, that's all. I mean, if you'd read that in the in the Soviet pronunciation, it'd be Mikhail. Mikhail Todorovich, you know, and I just lost from Russia with love with all these KGB guys running around after Bond and stuff. And I'm like, wow, what a cool name that is. So I started reading it. And Mike Todorovich, you know, said, dear Mr. Fairchild, you know, it's, it's great that young Americans like yourself are interested in coming to work for the U.S. government. And especially in this case uh, for CIA. And here's some advice I have for you. 
and he and he went through a two-page type letter and he said he says uh stay in junior high school you know go go on to high school <laughs> go on to high school if, you, if that's right for you apply yourself learn as much as you can and if you go go to college then I would recommend that you take uh, international politics or international relations or Asian studies or I mean, any kind of studies program. And, and, uh, and uh, a foreign language is going to be important for you, Brian, because we're the CIA and we all speak foreign languages and live overseas. So foreign language is important. And, uh, and if you could get some military experience along the way, that would I be was going to ask you that. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I, you know, and then he said, in like last paragraph, he said, and six six months prior to you wanting to accept employment, you know, so I figured it's a done deal already. You know, six months prior to you wanting to accept employment, uh, get back in touch with us, and we'll put you through the polygraph and some interviews, and uh, we'll bring you on board. And I'm like, whoa, man! I, I'm 14 years old. I'm gonna be working for the CA. I already got a letter, you know. So I slept with that letter under my pillow for you know years after that. <laughs> and and I got to tell you that whenever one of those milestones came up i followed michael todorovich's advice you know and so i wasn't sure i was going to get out of high school at one point wasn't sure i was going to get <laughs> into college another point. but when i did you know i i, I started taking <clears throat> international relations and I, I i had always been uh you know uh involved and interested in chinese boxing you know kung fu and all that kind mm -hmm. of stuff so i had been taking those lessons since i was 14. Uh, and you know, continued on with that, and and you know, so I had, and then I, I joined the military. I joined the 19th Special Forces Group, which is a Green Beret unit. Mm -hmm. So I joined that, and at 25 years old, when I finally, oh, and um, because I was interested in kung fu and all that, I started taking Chinese at the university, Mandarin Chinese. Well, one day my professor came up to me and he said, "Hey, you're the most motivated guy in the class, and you're the." best in the class, you know, speaking Chinese, we need somebody to go to Taiwan as an exchange student. Would you be interested? And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah send me. That's <laughs> I'm I your guy. <laughs> so, so when I applied to CIA, I had done all those things that Michael Todorovich, all those years before, had told me to do. I had, And I ended up with a, a degree, a, a dual major, a degree in Asian studies and international relations. Uh, honors in international relations. I had acquired Mandarin Chinese from my year abroad, you know, in Taiwan. Uh, I had been a Green Beret, you know, and I had I had done it all. Now, you know, when you go to CIA, it's like going to, you know, the be biggest, best Fortune 500 companies or the, the you know, SEAL Team 6 or Delta, you know, a tier one, a tier one agency. Mm -hmm. So, it's the kind of deal where thousands and thousands of people apply and only a few are selected, you know. But uh, but the thing was that I had something that none of those guys had. It didn't matter if they came from Yale, if they came from Harvard, if they lived overseas for four years. It didn't matter because I had the Todorovich plan and it carried the day. You know, it really did. I mean, they, they you know, everything I had done, they, they looked at me and they said, great kid, raise your right hand. You want to be a spy? And I said, yes, sir. You know, and I took the took the oath and became a, a clandestine service officer for CIA. And then I did that for 20 years. 20 years later, the CIA goes, I mean, the, the Soviet Union, which was the reason, the whole reason for CIA's existence. Well, in 1991, it went belly up. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there was no more Soviet Union. The Cold War was over. And, uh, you know, so 
CIA at that time, you know, at that time, people in government and, you know, the best minds in government thought we're there's basically an end to history. You know, we're not going to ever have to worry about enemies ever again. You know, we're the great United States of America. You know, we don't have to worry about anybody anymore. Right. But we, want the, we want the peace dividend, you mm -hmm. know. So all these politicians were kind of greedy to get their hands on all that money going to all those intelligence hmm. agencies. Hmm. So they, you know, they said, <laughs> in fact, Patrick, uh, Patrick Moynihan, who was a, a, a big famous uh, mm -hmm. uh, congressman at the time, Daniel right. Patrick Moynihan. Well, you can't see here. I got a picture of Jim Woolsey, uh, the director at that time, up here on my wall. But old Pat, Daniel Patrick Moynihan went to Jim and said, Jim, you guys did a great job, but we, do we even need you anymore? I mean, do we need a CIA? What do we need a CIA for? So that was the, the mindset in Washington from mm -hmm. president on down. You know, like, we don't really need these guys anymore. So, well, so in 1995, you know, they, I, I started looking for my next assignment, you know, like 20 years to come up. I'm looking for my next assignment. They're saying, no, Brian, come back to headquarters. And Janet, at that time, nobody in his right mind uh, as a case officer for CIA ever wanted to go back home, ever wanted to go to Washington, D.C. and, you know, stroll the halls of headquarters. I mean, how right. are you going to recruit spies there? You know, how, how are you <clears throat> right. do you James Bond thing there? You know, so I kept saying no. And I, I would say right back to him and I'd say, OK, guys. Figure out. The one station nobody wants to go to, everybody avoids, everybody gives you excuses for, and send me there. And they said, nah, Brian, you got to come back. And so I said, well, look, I, I just don't want to come back to headquarters. I could go to the farm, and the farm is our training facility. Right. I have to teach other case officers how to do this job. Send me to the farm. They said, ah, you know, and they, I kept bugging them, right? So they finally just said, look. Basically, we just want to get rid of you guys. Right? <laughs> stop pestering us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, stop pestering us. So what we're doing now is we're offering early out bonuses. And so Fairchild, if you get an early out bonus and you withdraw the money that you put into your retirement plan, you're going to have one hell of a nest egg that you can go and do anything with. And, you know, because you're a good case officer, good case officers can land on their feet, you know, and do anything that they want and all that kind of stuff. So. I tried fighting it for a while. They weren't going to go for it. They really just wanted to downsize the agency because there was no target anymore. And so I finally said, okay, give me the money and I'll go. And that's what most people did at the time. <clears throat> In fact, there was an argument later that, you know, that's a, a, one of the times that CIA's capabilities really went down because, well, they start closing stations and bases and they start bringing all these people home. And the only people that stuck around we're guys who, you know, either were just so, you know, so focused on being a spy that they couldn't imagine a life outside of CIA mm -hmm. or the mediocre who couldn't find a job, and, you know, in other places were afraid to go out and try to, you know, create another career. So, so that's basically, uh, you know, how I got into the CIA. And then, then after CIA, 9-11 uh, happened, right? Mm -hmm. And when 9-11 happened, I started to teach, uh, have a good friend. Uh, my best friend is a guy by the name of Bond Forrest. And he and I actually started the whole training stuff, you know, of uh, counterterrorism after 9-11. He and I started. We went to Baltimore. He had formerly been a Baltimore cop, had some contacts there. And we started teaching counterterrorism in Baltimore. And for the next 10 years, we, we did that. And we trained over 10,000 
CIA, FBI, military, uh, local cops, and you know, local intelligence officers, and and all those guys, and we train them. But then in uh, in 2010, uh, you know, President Obama said to his security agencies, "You can no longer string the terms Islamic." and terrorism or radical islam or anything about islam and terrorism <clears throat> can't do it right? right so all my all of my money that was that i was getting from training these people came from the department of homeland security which of course is a federal agency mm -hmm. so now the department of homeland security wasn't going to fund any more of this training so these guys in police departments you know came up to us and they said man you got, I mean, and they really said this. They said, you you have best training there is. I mean, hands down, we love your training and it's important to us and we really want it. Brian, we can't do it anymore, man, because we've got like 15 programs that are funded by DHS. And if we take your program, they'll defund all those other programs. Mm -hmm. so sorry, you know, well, right about that time, a friend of mine and Vaughn's uh, got, uh, an introduction, got to know uh, Sheikh Saud bin Saker Al-Qasimi, who was the crown prince at that time in uh, in Ras al-Haimah in the United Arab Emirates, and said, hey, the, the Sheikh would be interested if you had some, you know, training and stuff. So we wrote to this, this lady, and we said, you know, what we could do, I mean, all these 18, and remember, this is the time Afghanistan and Iraq's going on, right? Right. So all these 18 year old kids are running over to Muslim countries. They don't know what a Muslim is. They don't know what Islam is. They don't know what a tribe is. They don't know anything. The only thing they knew about Islam was Osama bin Laden. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, the Sheikh invited me over and, you know, Vaughn and I went over and we met with him. And I said that same thing to him. And I said, your, your highness, wouldn't it be, we were on, we we're on first name basis. He called me Brian. I called him your highness. <laughs> <laughs> so, first name basis on yeah, a one-way yeah. street so we, were, we, were, we, were, we were like that you know so so i said your highness you know isn't doesn't this seem wrong to you i mean uh, you know you don't want people going around you know going in you know arriving in a muslim country thinking that every muslim mm -hmm. they speak osama bin laden and he said well yes that's, that's true yeah. oh we would like to do this you know so so we, i ended up working with him one-on-one -on -one, putting a, a a total immersion course together uh during all of 2009 and then uh that was 2009 then 2010 i come back and obama obama does the whole you know you can't do this anymore no no islamic terrorism radical islam anything like that and then i get a phone call from afghanistan and these guys call up and they said hey would you like to come and work for this this outfit and i i, I said yeah yeah why not i mean uh, this other stuff isn't working anymore we can't do this so uh, I'll come down. I was living in, in Pennsylvania. So I said, I'll come down to Washington, D.C., and I'll, I'll interview for the position uh, next week. How's that? You know, and they're like, yeah, OK, yeah, sure. That's fine. You can come back down next week. And and, you know, I, I sort of got that all squared away and hung up and they called right back and they said, Brian, I don't think you understand. I mean, you don't have to come and interview for this position. You got it. I mean, we're offering it to you. You want it to say yes. So I said, okay, yeah, I'll go. So I ended up going and spending a year and a half in Afghanistan, and I was teaching uh, Afghan national police intelligence officers, you know, how to go after the bad guys. And so that's basically how I got into CIA, why I got interested in CIA, and then how my career went along. So, you know, 
that's my background pretty much right there. <clears throat> so let me ask you this because um, as a general rule, uh, people nowadays do not trust any government agency, three-letter agency, whatever, because of moving so far from the reason why things were created into now persecuting, you know, uh, political sure. opponents or, you know, people that speak out against a narrative or something. Where do you see problems inside of not just the CIA, but government agencies as yeah. a whole, because I think they got so bloated and basically kind of so full of themselves that they lost focus of what it was meant to be in the first place. Yeah. Well, that's part of it. Now, let me, let me give you an example of a couple of things. First of all, you know, I agree with your analysis. In fact, uh, uh, you know, we're the United States of America, but you can't call us the United States of America anymore because we're not united. So we basically, we, the people have taken that word united and, and scrapped it, you know, so mm -hmm. you can call our, uh, you, you can call us the divided States of America or the dysfunctional States of America. <laughs> Definitely the, are. The crazy <laughs> States of America or the, the Trump States of America, the, you know, or the Biden States of, you know, you can, you can come right. up with other qualified, but you can't call us united anymore. Right. And one of the problems in in that is the politic the the the, uh, the 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 security agencies becoming politicized. Right. Okay. Well, one of the things I want to tell all your viewers right from the get go is that it doesn't. You know, the majority of all people working in the FBI and the CIA and you know and national security are good people, and they mm -hmm. they're trying right. to do their job. That they you know like me, I wanted to be a spy from 14 years old. You know, I right. Was, really wanted to do well. I wanted to serve the country. I wanted to be part of something bigger than myself. I wanted to make a contribution, you know, and <clears throat> most people, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> most people in these, uh, in these agencies are the same way, but many people at the top level became politicized. Right. You know? so that's one aspect of it. And, you know, there's no doubt about that. And you probably know about the, the letter where, you know, 51, you know, intelligence officer signed a letter, the, the Hunter mm -hmm. Biden letter, and it turns out it was all a lie. Right. You know? And my response to that is, you idiots, you know, how can any president ever trust any of you again mm -hmm. when you obviously, you know, and, and you admit to the fact that that was a fake document and you lied about it? Right. You know, if I was the president, I wouldn't ask you for any intelligence advice because what happens if you know, lo and behold, unbeknownst to me, you've decided that's a political issue and you're going to tell me something else. Right. You know? So so right there, I mean, any any national security agency that does anything like that, I think, you know, Admiral Hayden and, you know, Brennan and all those guys, Mike Morrell, all those guys should be <clears throat> had to resign on the spot and never be put in any kind of an intelligence intelligence advisory position at all. Mm -hmm. You know, but that so that's that's the one thing. That's the politiz politicization of intelligence. Right. And it's, ter it's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. The other thing is <clears throat> that CIA is broken from an operational point of view. Mm -hmm. That the job that I used to do and the job that we how we used to do that job. I was going to say back in the day when we when we were growing up, it was way different than what it is now. Oh yeah. But it, 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 it got worse because 
I mentioned that the, the Soviet Union went belly up in 1991. Mm-hmm. And that was the reason for the whole reason for CIA's existence. Right. Well, once the, they didn't have a mission for 10 years, CIA was like a rudderless boat. You know, I mean, it was like you're going in the ocean and bumping into things over here and then bumping into things over here. And, you know, I mean, by the time it finally 10 years later, when it finally found the mission, which was counterterrorism after 9-11, mm-hmm. George Tenet, who was the director of CIA at the time, said that CIA was basically in chapter 11 bankruptcy. You know, I mean, it had, you know, it had deteriorated so far. They had so few people, uh, the, you know, the training facility, the farm was in disrepair. They closed stations and bases all over the world. They weren't taking in very many people who, you know, as recruits because nobody wanted to join because CIA didn't have a mission, you know, so it was, mm-hmm. it was that kind of thing. <clears throat> and so for 20 years, you know, they focused like a laser, Janet, just like that, you know, like a laser on nothing but counterterrorism. So they basically forgot about the rest of the world because, you know, there was an end to history, right? So right. you don't have to worry about all those other pesky nations out there. I mean, what we got to focus on is getting bin Laden and getting, you know, I'm now Zawadri and people like mm-hmm. that. So that's what they did. <clears throat> and when you focus on something like that as an institution, you know, I mean, just from your, you know, your own experience, I'm sure you could, you could bring examples to bear that once your focus is like this, well, you need you to miss everything outside of that. And, yeah. And everything reflects that mission. So we mm-hmm. need a budget, right? Well, what was the money for? Counterterrorism. It wasn't for China. It wasn't for Russia. It wasn't for Iran or North Korea. It was for counterterrorism. What mm-hmm. tools are you going to bring to the job? Well, that's going to be counterterrorism tools. What about personnel? Who are the personnel you're going to bring to the job? Well, they're going to be counterterrorism people. Now, CIA has a, a, a an aspect to it that's a paramilitary group. It's called the the Special Activities uh, uh, Division. And within the Special Activities Division, there's a Special Operations Group. And but all of those guys have always been staffed by, you know, professional military guys that were brought into the system from other places. So now we've had this major national, you know, national emergency and the towers had gone down and the Pentagon had been crashed into and, you know, all this sort of thing. And so, you know, Obviously, everybody in in power said, "Man, we got to get these guys." That's what that's what your focus has to be, Tenant. You guys at CIA have to be focused on on counterterrorism, so that's all they focused on, and and they didn't even create their own cool, uh, you know, special operations group. What they did is what they've always been doing. They went to the special teams, the SEAL Team Six, and all the SEAL teams, Delta Force, and all the good special forces groups, the 75th Ranger Regiment. Uh, mm-hmm. Marine recon, and they grabbed those guys and guys who were getting either ready to get out or re up. And they said, How would you like to work for CIA? And these guys said, Oh, yeah, that'd be great. I could be a spy. That's cool. So they pull all these guys directly out of those units. Like, you know, imagine on Friday you're in SEAL Team Six and another guy's in Delta, you know, and you're brought over and Monday you're now CIA officers and they sprinkle you with holy water and they say, You are now CIA. You're now CIA. <laughs> and now please get along. <laughs> And, and, then, yeah, and now you go out and start all your CIA counterterrorism stuff. Mm-hmm. But because of that, we lost we lost uh, sight of the world and the world grew up around us. And we gave right. the world decades and decades to build up specific capabilities that mm-hmm. were designed to go against our vulnerabilities. And right. so that's where we find ourselves today. I've been chattering on here. I'll just shut up and <laughs> let you know. No, I, I think that's good to give 
like an overview like that so people have an idea because a lot of times when people think CIA they think liar and <laughs> you're you're born to lie and everything you do or say is deceitful and whatever but like we were talking about before it's changed <clears throat> so yes. much from what the initial purpose was especially devolving into what it is today yeah um people are very put off by cia or or any three-letter agency or yeah, any government any government institution right? yeah yeah so let me ask you this on more of a personal level while you were um stationed in all of these different places how many places did you go first off well, I was in seven stations and stations and bases. I was a chief of base in China. So I, I served in uh, Southeast Asia, Asia, Europe. Uh, and then uh, after getting out of the agency and doing my other stuff, I, I served in, you know, the UAE and Afghanistan. And, you know, that's... So I, you've I, been all over the place. I've been all over the world. And I, I basically, for CIA, I lived out, you know, out of our country for... 14 years, you know, something like that, you know, and that's mm -hmm. what all case officers wanted to do. I mean, you wanted to be overseas and, you know, speak languages and, and, you know, figure out the back alleys of all these countries and, you know, do your spy stuff. So, mm -hmm. so that's, that's where I, I was, uh, I was stationed, but let me say something about this whole concept of, uh, you know, lying. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it, it brings up a, I, I've been married a couple of times because another thing about, about uh, spy work is it's tough on marriage. You know, right. I mean, Absolutely. It, you know, it's whoever the spouse is, that's the spy who all of a sudden, you know, at a moment's notice, you got to be there or you got to go there. Or you want to mm -hmm. go to this country, but no, well, nobody else in the family wants to go to that country. You know, I mean, that kind of deal. So it can be hard on marriage. So I've been married more than once. My, my, my second wife, you know, when she, you know, all CIA officers are undercover. Right. 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 Yeah. And I'll go into that in a minute because it's one of my most important things that I want to, you know, tell the, the country about, but mm -hmm. so undercover, you know, if you're state, you know, you can't, you don't go overseas and say, you know, Hey, Mikhail Todorovic, I'm a spy. Glad to meet you. You know, <laughs> right. Not, not starter, right? <laughs> you can't go around. This. So you can't tell the truth, but you have a cover story. Right. 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 I don't regard, I mean, it, you know, if you define it narrowly, I mean, you're lying, but I don't mm -hmm. regard it as a lie if it's a cover position and you're putting out your cover story so that you and your family doesn't, don't get killed and, and you can do the job that you're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. You know, so I was undercover for my whole career and I served under non-official cover, which is the best cover where no government organization has any idea who you are. And if you get in trouble, nobody's coming to help you, you know, that kind of deal. And then, and then you've got on the your own. Yeah. Then you got the official cover, which is like, you know, I, I'm a state department guy. I, I work in, you know, some embassy office and, and my real job is to be a spy. So uh, my, my second wife, you know, when she figured out that I had this cover story and I would say, Hey, we're going to go to this party and I'm going to be saying this, this, and this. Now don't blow me, you know, don't blow the, mm -hmm. my cover, you know, cause I mean, you know, we can't do that. This is a whole different kind of life. And at one point she looked at me and said, you know, you're just a paid professional liar. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> so, so it resonates when you say, you know, people think that you're a liar, but, but the reason that we're liars isn't because we're just, you know, we just want to lie. 
you know, or we want to, you know, we have cover stories, you know. So sometimes it's fun. I don't know. Yeah. So no, I, I mean, so it's a hard life to live, you know. I mean, and you got to remember, you know, you're you're under alias and you're working with some guy. You got to remember not to fall back into, yeah. Well, like I told my brother Bob. Oh, I don't have a brother Bob. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. You know, I mean, you, you got to live your cover, you know. So so how so, how difficult is that to, you know, like study up on whatever your cover story is and always be like vigilant to, to stick to what that story is. How hard is that? It's tough. I mean, it, it, it's a tough job, you know, now if you're like me and you wanted to, you know, you wanted to wallow in that stuff, you know, I, all I wanted to be was a spy, you know, since I was 14. So, so for me, it was, it was a welcome sort of thing. It's like, man, I'm living the life now. I mean, all that stuff I wanted to do as a 14 year old, I'm doing and and look, I've got alias documentation and and I'm not Brian Fairchild anymore. I'm I'm this guy in this instance, mm -hmm. you know. And, and so you you put your mind to it. I mean, it takes a little bit of doing and, you know, and you practice it and you got get it until it's second nature, you know, where you don't even think about it anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, if you think, you can get in trouble, right? If all of a sudden somebody asks you a question, what was your sister's name? If you can't remember your sister's name or whoever you said your sister, you're like, like and you look meets like, me. <laughs> my sister? Oh, oh yeah, my sister. Oh yeah, yeah. The sister that lives in Baltimore, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, you can't do that. Let's see, so you got to actually have it down, and and it, and it takes quite a bit to do it. But it also is tough, you know, for many people living overseas and being, you know, the minorities. You know, right. For most of my career, I was a minority. You know, I mean, I was in in countries where everybody was Asian or everybody was, you know, non-American or, you know, that, mm -hmm. that kind of deal. So, uh, and some, and that's tough on marriages too. You know, I mean, right. your wife kids didn't ask for that job. They're going along with you because that's what you do. And now your kid's stuck in, you know, some school and some, you know, country in Africa and it's the lesson, lessons are given in French and they didn't sign up for that, you know, and right. that's, that's really tough. So it can be a tough, it can be a tough lifestyle, but I enjoyed it myself. I mean, like I say, I've been mar married more than once, and I so I obviously suffered some losses along the way. Mm -hmm. But uh, you know, I would still be doing it now if the CIA hadn't given me the early out bonus and sent me <laughs> on my way. <laughs> so, maybe they maybe they only want youngsters in the. Well, it, in wasn't, the... it wasn't that. It was that <laughs> the job just wasn't there anymore. And, and see, and 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 that's a that's a key thing. If it's okay with you, can I ramble on for a little yeah, bit here? Absolutely. Okay. So one of the things that I have a problem with these days with CIA is this whole cover thing, right? Mm -hmm. Now cover is not just something cool. I mean, James Bond, he had a, a card that said global trading on it, you know, right. Wherever, wherever he went, mm -hmm. he'd say bond James Bond and he'd take out his global trading card and there's, you know, Oh, Oh, well that's who you are. You know, I mean, cover is a lot more involved than that. Right. And there's a, there's a reason for it. And the reason is, and I guess I should step back even further and say, well, what does CIA do? What does a case officer in CIA do? Well, case officers in C, there are two kinds of case officers now. There's paramilitary case officers, and there mm -hmm. are spies like the James Bond kind of generic spy that was what I was. And for the whole Cold War, the past Cold War, the majority of all CIA officers were those kind of spies. They weren't paramilitary. They were, you know, the James Bond genre of spies. 
And so if you get put overseas, your purpose of, of being overseas is to find privileged intelligence, you know, within that country and recruit like somebody from that government to be a spy for the United States government and then have the wherewithal and an understanding of how to run that spy so that you don't get caught by, you know, the counterintelligence service. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's a, two major things in, in espionage. There's the spy who's trying to steal secrets and there's the counterintelligence service that's trying to stop you from stealing secrets. Mm -hmm. Now, so so if Brian Fairchild goes overseas and I say, well, one of the things we do as a, as a nation is we stick a, a flag in the sand and we call it a U.S. embassy and all of our spies are here. Right. So it's like, you know, in those football games, you have those fingers, you know, those big fingers, like, foam fingers, like, like, <laughs> taking that flag in the sand and going, you're looking for our spies. Look They're here. All here. <laughs> you know? So it's not very hard for a counterintelligence service. And, you know, I mean, some some embassies have you know several thousand people. Some right. embassies have four, you know, right. but it's not very hard for a counterintelligence service to figure out who the spies are in that one building. And they have resources up, you know, up one side and down the other. And they know their country and their capital much better than you're ever going to know it, right? Mm -hmm. So when you think you're cool, you know, going on a surveillance detection route and taking a left here and going down this aisle, well, uh, this alley and, and you know, getting to a bus and getting on a bus and then getting into a subway. Well, you know, those guys know what you're doing. They go, oh, he's taking it right there. So he's going to come out at the plaza. You know, hey, guys, uh, look for him coming out of the plaza. You know, I mean, it's, it's that kind of deal. So it's a, it's a right. tough job, too. But so if you don't have any cover that's what happens and then what and then what happens when when you go to your spy right and maybe this is a ministry of interior guy or a ministry of economics guy and you're mm -hmm. having lunch with him and you're you know developing him and at some point you're going to try to help him in his life if he'll help you in your life you know i mean the whole concept of you know hey baby needs a new pair of shoes your wife needs that uh, that operation uh, you know, you're having trouble at home, whatever, you know, your boss is screwing your wife and you know, that's not right. Is it, you know, right. maybe I can help, you know, and then you pitch a guy and he says, yes, I will work for you. And you, you have a spy, right? Now you say, okay, now that we're working, you know, we got to work in a certain way so that your guys, the counterintelligence service doesn't find you. Right. Mm -hmm. Or find me because if they do, and this is the most important thing, one, probably the most important thing I'm going to say about anything about cover in this whole interview if they figure you out, then they know who you're talking to. If mm -hmm. they know who you're talking to, imagine if it's you, Janet, you know, and you're in the ministry of, uh, of uh, economy, economics. And all of a sudden you get a knock on your door from the dreaded, your, your dreaded national police agency. Mm -hmm. And they look and they go, oh, hey, Janet, how are you doing? Mind if I come in and they like, barge their way in and and you know who these guys are and they've got their credentials and your eyes are like this big and you invite them into the den and you're all sitting down and they go, hey, Jana, I just wanted to tell you, I just want to talk to you about something. You, you know, this guy, this American diplomat, Brian Fairchild, right? And you go, well, well, well yes, sir. Yes, yeah, I just like, no, I mean, he's a nice man. I like him. And then the guy looks at you and goes, but you know, he's a spy, right? Oh man, your whole life changes right there, right? Right. It's, it's, yeah, I mean, you're like this. Now it could go either way. Either you could disappear, go to you know, go to prison forever. No one's ever going to see you again, or something else, right? Right. So you know, once you get to that point, you're like, 
oh, I, I did not know. I'm so sorry. I, I will never see that man again. I hate that man, actually. He's a real lousy guy. And the, the guy looks at you and says, no, no, Janet, no, no. We want you to see him. We want you to continue to see him. And at some point, he's going to pitch you to become an American spy. He's going to want secrets from you. And when he does that, we're going to be there with you. And when he does that, we're going to feed you false secrets. Right. You can give to him and he'll give to his people and his people will write in some cool intelligence, intelligence analysis and give it to the president of the United States and the policymakers. And they'll be making policy regarding our country based on fake <clears throat> information. And right. we're going to run this guy. I mean, we want you to stay in touch with him for 20 years if we can. And that's what you call a double agent, right? Mm -hmm. Now you become a double agent. So, you know, so now, you know, my career has taken off and I'm getting medals for all the intelligence you're giving me, but all the intelligence you're giving me is fake. And right. we're never going to know because the counterintelligence service doesn't, you know, it's not egotistical. It doesn't want to stand up and go, well, that was my operation and I showed you Americans. You know, they don't do that. They just keep running. And right. if you leave the scene, you'll introduce me to your, your, you know, the, the person taking over for you and you'll tell me that you've already talked to her and she wants to do the same thing and how the spies, you know, the double agents continue. So you can see how important it is to have cover. Right. And why if you don't have cover, that can be a terrible thing for, you know, the United States government. Mm -hmm. So that, that's one kind of spy. And then the other kind of spy is a paramilitary officer. Now, the, the kind of spy I just described to you is the kind of spy that lives overseas, works overseas his whole career, speaks foreign languages, understands the countries that he lives in, you know, understands the languages of the people in the country that he lives in, the, the religions and all that sort of thing, and, and the history of that country and, and why that country is dealing with the Soviet Union or China or North Korea, you know, whatever it is that you're trying to figure out. Mm -hmm. So that's that kind of a spy. The paramilitary kind of spy is just like you see on TV, you know, the guys that have helmets and they got their M4 and they got goggles and, you know, they're going to get on a helicopter and be led over in this, you know, vacant lot. And they're going to make their way, you know, through the alleyways and go to that target. And it's a killer capture mission. And they're going to com complete their mission, get back on that helo and go home. And it's, and it's, it's a done deal. Right. Mm -hmm. In and out, in and out. But they're not. You know, and even if they live in that country, they're living in a forward operating base. They're not living like a regular person. And anybody who looks at them knows there's something about them. You know, yeah, right. I don't know if you've known any special operators or anything, but they look I like special operators. <laughs> and, and, you know, and uh, so, I mean, to give you a great example, I, those special operators, some of them can do that other kind of job, but not for the most part, because they look like special operators. They think like special operators. And I love special operators. You know, and and I've known, you know, a lot of them and I've known, you know, SEAL Team 6 guys and Delta guys and I want to be them someday. You know, I mean, they're they're great and they're inspirational, but they're not this kind of a spy. Mm -hmm. Right. And so to give you an example, this kind of a spy, the guy who might be in the best position doing that kind of thing in a specific mission might be deaf, have a cleft lip and everybody in the country thinks he's either retarded or or you know crazy or but for whatever reason they're just shunned nobody even pays attention to them they hang out in street corners and that guy could be the best spy if what mm -hmm. you want to do is you want to focus on that facility and the trucks going in and out of that facility and looking for a specific guy 
right? right. You don't need to be all dressed up in tan outfits and have bulletproof things and you know your hat on backwards, you know, and all, <laughs> all, all that kind of stuff and be, and be and be sitting there looking down. You don't need to be doing that, but that that deaf guy, you know, you know, talking to other people, you know, they look at him and go, look at these idiots. You know, but he's mm -hmm. getting intelligence left and right. See, so you can see the big difference. Right. Absolutely. But for, but for 20 years, CIA did that paramilitary stuff. They didn't do the other stuff and they weren't focused on China. They weren't focused on any other place. And so what happened is, uh, you know, when it came time now, now, you know, I think we're going to get into the, a new era of jihad because of what's going on in the Middle East now. Mm -hmm. But right now. You know, jihad is kind of passe, but the CIA had made itself another team, right? There's SEAL Team 6, Delta Team, and CIA. And all those guys in CIA's team came from Delta and SEAL Team 6 and these other, you know, tier one agencies. And so now they find themselves redundant, right? Because right. terrorism isn't the main thing. Now we're running after China and Russia and North Korea and Iran, and we got to have a bigger Navy and all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And but those other teams still exist, right? They never ceased existing. So now CIA is redundant because all these other teams exist and, and they are supposed to be doing other things. So they had to get back into the espionage game. So they went back into the espionage game and it's only been like the last few years. And, and you know, the, the, the government's like a ship, uh, a huge ship. And if you want that, you know, it's not like you're coming up to a stop sign and you stop and the ship goes mm, and stops, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it keeps going and going and going and going. If you want to turn right, it's like it's got okay, we're gonna turn here. We're 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 turning. We're turning. you know, I mean, it takes a long time right. for the state to turn. And so CIA is basically in rudimentary steps recreating the clandestine service for for spies like I used to be. And uh, and they're doing it wrong, see, because the only way they know how to do it is get people to write their, you know, their applications, send in your application. We'll put you on a, a conveyor belt, a cookie cutter conveyor belt. Well, it's just like if you went into a Fortune 500 company, you know, you come in, maybe you come in as a, a mailroom clerk and you work your way through the system until you're a salesman and a manager. And right. it's, like, it's the same kind of thing. So. You take these 20 somethings into the agency and uh, and you have to train them. Right. What is CIA? Uh, what does CIA do? How do you write for CIA? Uh, you know, what's the, the culture here? Do I come in early? Do I leave late? Do I? You know, I mean, it's all this sort of thing. How is mm -hmm. it divided up? I mean, if somebody tells me I'm going to the seventh floor, what does that mean? Well, it means you're going to go see the director. He he lives on the seventh floor. You know, mm -hmm. so you got to learn all that stuff. And then you go to interim assignments in different offices that get, you know, a feeling for what operations are in different places around the world. And then they'll send you to the farm and then they'll train you in clandestine techniques and, and you know, the stuff that you're supposed to be using. Uh, and nowadays, since nobody has any military anymore, very few do, uh, down at the farm, they'll teach you basic military skills. Because if you recruit a spy who talks about AK-47s, which is one of the most proliferate, prolifer yeah, proliferate weapons in the world, you know, if you don't know what an AK-47 is, it can be bad for you, you know. Mm -hmm. so, you know if your spy says, well, I'm getting a whole case of AK-47s in, and you go, uh, AK what? 
you know, that's why I'm thinking. Is I'm that risking, a radio? <laughs> I'm risking my life for you. And you don't even know what I'm saying. You know, mm-hmm. so it's, it's your problem. You know, so right. I, 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 absolutely. Going back to your question of how difficult is this job and how, how difficult can it be, right? Mm-hmm. Well, you've got to know stuff. You've got to have some basic knowledge and then you have to be able to think on your feet and, and all that. But, uh, you know, they'll do that and they'll send them down to the farm and get training and then they'll put them overseas. And how do they put them overseas? Well, they put them in embassy positions like they always have. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, sometimes they might sneak a couple of guys, not official cover guys, in a, a couple of corporate offices somewhere. But mm-hmm. it doesn't take counterintelligence, you know, like anybody with a third grade education in counterintelligence can figure out, oh, you got a whole bunch of these spies in the embassy and and those guys over there that are never at their cover jobs, but are always out talking to Russians and, you know, stuff like that. They're spies, too. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't take very much to figure out who the spies are. So they're 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 messing up. Right. They're they're, they're trying to do the old thing. But and they used to could do that because, you know, in the old days, I mean, back in that James Bond movie, uh, you know, from Russia with love, I mean, the whole world was in a in a cold war and it was the soviets against us right 12 men on a team we had to win you know that kind of deal and so you didn't have the technology that you have today i was gonna say yeah. the the evolving of of technology and like oh. a long time ago there was no internet and oh yeah, you know, yeah. It's stuff like that so i can only imagine like oh and i'm going to get into this a little bit how, because I mean, it's amazing stuff how different the training has to be now In compared fact, to you years can't ago. Do it. You just simply can't do it. I mean, a CIA's clandestine service operations are obsolete as of this conversation right now. But yet they're still working like they're not, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, but the the one thing that that you know negates all of that is the new surveillance technology. Mm-hmm. And CIA itself says that in 29, 30 countries, their CIA case officers can be followed without ever having a human in the loop just because of technology, right? So all the CCTV cameras, you know, drones, right. you know, this this sort of thing, uh, license plate readers, uh, you mm-hmm. know, static surveillance of police officers along major highways. I mean, there's just so much, you know, so much uh, surveillance technology and it's all digital. Right. right. So what that means is if I go out and a CCD, CCTV camera, you know, starts filming me, well, that's tied into all other CCTV cameras in the city. Mm-hmm. Right. So if somebody wants to see what did Fairchild do today, it's not that I got filmed by this camera, but I dodged and I got away with it. You know, I mean, because everywhere I go, there's a camera and then right. there's cameras in shops and those those shop cameras are tied into the, you know, the central surveillance. Uh, right. Situation. And so they can just run that back and forever, right? I mean, they can go back mm-hmm. six months and see where Fairchild went, who he saw, and, and what he was doing, and what routes he took, and and how he went over like to these parks outside of the city. And why would he do that unless he was, you know, during work hours, unless he was doing mm-hmm. something spooky, you know, that kind of deal. So technology has gotten better, but now it's even getting better than that because there's this technology called Whammy. And I don't know if you've ever heard of WAMI, but it stands Mm-mm. for Wide Area Motion Imagery. Okay. And this is, I mean, from a surveillance standpoint and from a, you know, gotcha standpoint, WAMI is like everything that you would hate to have to deal with. And what it is, it's a technology 
that's not large. Uh, you know, the U.S. military was using it in in you know, Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, and it was classified back then. And you know, we we're doing beta tests and all that. But now, if you just go to the Google and you Google wide area motion imagery, it'll take you to you know several companies, and one of them's in uh, Falls Church, Virginia, and they're selling these these uh, miniaturized whammy you know systems. Uh, to everybody, anybody who wants to be a client, and, you know, around the world, bad guys, good guys, doesn't matter. So what does Whammy do? Well, if you figure, you know, my laptop is a is a city. Let's say it's Washington D.C. Well, you get this Whammy package in a Cessna or a, a large drone, or yeah, it can be put on satellites. I mean, there's all kinds of ways you can do it. But so you don't have to have a real sophisticated deal. A couple mm -hmm. of Cessna planes, you know, that you know you know, uh, take over from each other after 12 hours or whatever, but the, you just have that plane circle the city and the cone of the photography is so wide. It basically takes in the whole city at once. Right. So as you're flying around that cone is just adjusting a little bit and the cone is going like that and it's taking pictures of all movement. Let me say that again, all movement in the city forever for as long as you're running that, right? Mm -hmm. So what does that mean from a, a spy's point of view? Well, if little Brian Fairchild comes out and he's not a spy yet, but he comes out on his front stoop to get the Washington Post, you know, he's filmed. No, they're not going to do anything. Nobody's going to do anything about that because I'm not a target. Mm -hmm. But if all of a sudden, you know, I could become a spy or they all of a sudden regard, regard me as a spy, they can look back and they can see Fairchild went back in the house. He came out two hours later. He got in his car. He drove here, 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 here. He went to these restaurants. He talked to these people. We got facial recognition on it. Then we meshed with facial recognition in the in the restaurant. And we got who he's talking to. We got everything, right? I mean, it's it's that kind of a deal. Right. So you just can't pop if they know who you are and they know where you're starting, you're toast. They they right. got it. You know, and so that's why CIA can't do this stuff anymore. But yet they do. And they're, they try to do workarounds, you know, like, for instance, uh, and, and well, just a, a truth be known and, and uh, you know, to show that it's not just me thinking this stuff. There's a guy by the name of Mike Morell who's got a podcast and he was formerly the acting chief of CIA. And there's a woman by the name of Don Myrick who used to be, you know, in, in uh, James Bond, they had Q. Q was mm -hmm. the guy who did all the cool weapons and stuff like that, gave him the James Bond. Right. Well, she, was, she was a Q for CIA. Mm -hmm. She was a deputy director for science and technology. And uh, they got in. Uh, uh, she joined Mike Morell on his podcast uh, months ago, maybe a year ago. And they both admitted that because of this new, new kind of technology, that that technology was an existential threat to the way CIA case officers work. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, so all your 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 listeners know what I'm talking about. An existential threat is they've got you. I mean, you're dead. You're done. Right. So a meteor that came down 65 million years ago and and you know hit near Mexico and wiped out the dinosaurs. That was an existential threat to those dinosaurs. And so this technology is now an existential threat to the kind of spies that CIA is putting overseas. So how do you how do you deal with that? Right. Well, the first thing is. CIA can't do that stuff anymore. I mean, in American history, there were times and it have always been times when new organizations had to be created and old organizations had to be let go. 
Mm -hmm. Right. An example of that is uh, CIA was sort of birthed, uh, you know, back in World War II when they created this office called OSS, right. the Office of Strategic Services. Right. And so it was, you know, it was great. They, 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 you know, they were working under the gun. We were already at war with three different nations, and they had to find people who knew stuff. You know, new highways in Europe, or new, you know, potholes in Europe, or or new, you know the neighborhoods in different countries, you know, that sort of thing. And so they had to find those people and go out and physically find them and then say, Hey, we need your help. Will you help us? You know, and they became the OSS and they were, they did great work. But in 1945, the way the Americans worked, just like they did with the CIA that I was describing earlier is in 1945, the, the war ended and they disbanded it. Right. They said, Oh, we don't need you guys anymore. You did a great job. What a great capability. Go home. We don't need you anymore. But two years later, they had to create in 1947, they had to create CIA because they saw the, the Soviets were rising on the world stage. So so that's how we operate in, in this country, which is kind of crazy. You think you'd always want to have some level of special foreign intelligence. For you. Future vision of yeah, things so that are possible <laughs> and protect the republic. But, you know. You give these politicians the ability of taking that money and oh yeah yeah peace dividend. That's what they're going to do every time, right? So anyway, at any rate, so CIA is still you know they're still doing that cookie cutter you know conveyor belt thing, and it takes years for somebody you know to you, if you take me and you put me in training and then you put me in the farm and then you start putting me overseas. We said it would take about seven years to have a seasoned case officer. You know, a guy who really actually finally came to, oh, I know what I'm doing now and right. I know why I'm doing it and how I can do it. And I've got some experience and I've been burned a couple of times and now I get it, you know. But see, that doesn't work anymore, especially with this kind of technology. So mm -hmm. as, a, as a young non-seasoned case officer comes out and goes and meets his spies and things and, and is being photographed everywhere, you know, he's he's toast. So Well, and, and that leads me to this this question and i hate to think this way um but do you think a lot of the problems um and the lack of forward thinking and the lack of creativity basically do you think a lot of it has to do with like bureaucratic red tape oh well it's it's got kind of like We've yeah. always done things this way. So this is the way we have to do things. And there's like no, no creativity as far as thought goes as to how things could evolve or be done differently to, to fix things, to change things. Absolutely. And what you said is absolutely true. And, you know, it's, it's a, and another way you can look at it is at one time, the OSS was an elite organization, right? right? And right. it was secret and it was hidden away in places that nobody knew. And, and then mm -hmm. they went out and did these operations and Wild Bill Donovan, you know, ran it and did all these great things. And at one point, CIA was an elite organization. But mm -hmm. then over time, and even things like SEAL Team 6 and Delta, over time, these organizations become less elite and more bureaucratized, right. right? More of an institution. And institutions become hidebound. And mm -hmm. institutions get set in in ways that you can't dislodge them very well. So 
one of the ways that CIA is has become hidebound and 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 a non-elite organization is became this huge bureaucracy, right? So you got this huge headquarters in in Langley, Virginia. Right. But then there are satellite buildings all over North Virginia and Washington, right. D.C. They keep expanding and expanding and expanding. And they need more people to bring in for that Fortune 500 company as young kids who are going to grow up in the system and become the eventual managers and stuff. Well, mm -hmm. just that talk alone gives me the willy-nilly. I was, I was going to say, it reminds you, it's like, surprise, you know, yeah, it's like uh, that it's basically become a business. And yeah. and yeah. we're concerned about you know opening these new locations and advertising them. Yeah. Yeah. Look at us, we're the we're a CIA office or something. Yeah. But it and reminds me like that. it reminds me too of like um, how how messed up like the military is now, where you know they they find a target or whatever, but oh, then yeah. they can't go ahead and do what they need to do to execute you know, a mission or something, they have to get approval. Right, right. For, from Washington or Congress has to approve right. a strike or something, which makes zero sense. Yeah. And the, and the other, the other part of that is that, you know, when you, when you're an organization, when, when you come up, become an institution, then you're not so much concerned with solving the problem. You're concerned with, you know, making sure your institution succeeds. Right. So and you're making, not making like your a, money, <laughs> you're not even looking like a, a team member of you know, right. a, a U.S. team. You know, you're looking as CIA. Well, hey, if we run out and we do these 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 special operations over here, we'll impress the president. And he'll know that he needs us. And, you know, not, you know, not worrying about whether it's going to solve the problem or do the mission. But you want to be relevant. You know, you got to be seen and you, you think of yourself as having to be seen by your leadership as useful otherwise okay. your leadership is going to say what do i need you for like like they did back in 1991 you know right so so cia can't say dang it you know in all this time we've become obsolete as a clandestine service so we basically got to start over and they do that's basically it but they're never going to say that because an institution is never going to commit suicide it's going to say we're 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 working the problem we understand the problem we're overseas every day we understand the problem and so one of the things that, you know, Don Myrick, this woman who was Q that I was telling you about that, you know, she said on this podcast was, well, you know, we're, we're, we're doing workarounds. Like, for instance, we can spoof your phone, you know. And so, you know, you're supposed to be at a, a concert with your right. family. And uh, but really, you got to be over there doing your spy thing. But your phone is going to say you're still with your family at, you know, at the concert. Well, that sounds pretty cool and it sounds like something that James Bond unit would use. But when you think about what I've been talking about, it's ridiculous because, you know, imagine the counterintelligence guy sitting before his computer screen like this and he's watching fair. He's doing surveillance on Fairchild. Right. Mm -hmm. He comes to his boss and he says, hey, boss, come here. Mm -hmm. I got to show you something. Boss comes over and he says, OK, you're on Fairchild, right? Yeah, yeah, I am. Where is he? Well, his phone says he's right here, you know, at this, uh, at this concert with his family, but all the cameras say he's right there. Right. <laughs> you know, so what does that work around do for you? It does nothing except it convinces those guys that you really are the spy that they're after. And you're using, you know, sophisticated equipment to try to fool them 
and you can't because you're there's cameras everywhere right and the ASL says that we the counterintelligence service can you know we can follow these guys all over the, the the city without ever having to put me behind them you know following them on foot and these idiots think that by spoofing the phone somehow they fool us well, you know, and it's kind of it's, thing that that don meyer said is they said, you know well you know we did this study and she wouldn't tell the city which was good good tradecraft you know but she, there was a city and we did this study and i think it was like 300 million dollars they put into the study where they found out where they tracked all cameras and things in the city and they found lo and behold that there was like a, a portion of that city maybe a park or you know something like that that didn't have all these cameras mm-hmm. you know so right there a cia case officer could go into the city and meander over into that blank area and do his spooky stuff mm-hmm. you know but oh, there's two problems with that one she just told the world so the guy sitting behind the surveillance screen goes hey hey boss don't we have a blank a blind spot over there fix it <laughs> you know mm-hmm. so now there is no you know that 300 million dollars went to you know, went to crap because now you know they, they just fixed the uh you know the hole Mm-hmm. But the other thing is that any CIA officer is still going to have to be filmed, you know, going through the city until he gets to a point where he's out mm-hmm. in the open. And right. those surveillance, those guys who are surveilling them say, oh, he's out of sight. I can't get him because he's in a blind spot. Well, we better fix the blind spot. Right. Mm-hmm. So how long can you hope that that blind spot is going to be maintained? Or right. what if they wanted you to think it was maintained? And they have really super secret cameras and and cameras way up on buildings a mile away filming that area so your mm-hmm. case officers think that you're free and clear whoa i can do my spy stuff here and in reality you're you're being filmed the whole time you know so, so i can't imagine the amount of people that their lives are in jeopardy from all of this new technology and stuff because it's kind of like it's kind of like working with, you know, in any organization where it's kind of like the higher ups have never had to do the job yeah. of the people with the boots on the ground. So yeah. their main focus is dollar signs and, you know, analytics instead of right. concern for human life. Sure. And it's particularly uh, it's particularly, uh, uh, you know, important in this frame because. For the last 20 years, remember, all these folks in the clandestine service were paramilitary guys. Right. So for 20 years, anybody in CIA who got promoted from one position to another got promoted because of counterterrorism. Mm-hmm. You know, what the where they were where they were sent to whatever stations and bases, stations and bases ceased being dens of American spies and became liaison offices to the countries that were helping us go after terrorists, right? So if you had a uh, if you had a, a, a station in the embassy in Jordan and you used to run spy operations against the, the Soviets and the Chinese and everybody out of that you know station, now that station is a liaison office to the Jordanian service and you know each other and you pass papers back and forth and they're trying to give you information to go and capture and kill this bad guy and you're giving them information that hopefully will help them find the bad guys so that they can tell you where they are, you know, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. So, right. so once you're focused on that, it's hard to, to drag those people away and say, you've got to do something that you've never done in your career and that you don't really don't understand and you really have no expertise in. You've got to become an old time spy now and they can't do it. Right. So that's why they have to do the new blood and all that. 
But here's a way you can get around that, Janet. And, you know, I've given a lot of, a lot of thoughts to this. And in fact, the reason I wrote my book, The Hidden, uh, is because of this. And the, the title of my book, The Hidden, refers to remaining hidden, you mm -hmm. know, cadre who remain hidden under the radar of China's surveillance expertise, right? And so how do you do that? Well, you can't do it the CIA way because, right. first of all, if you just drive in the CIA headquarters and back, I mean, I don't know if you've ever been in the D.C. or around CIA headquarters, but CIA headquarters is in kind of a an upscale residential area. It's a little forest, it's like a park, but it's bordered on one side by Route 123 and it's bordered on the other side by the George Washington Parkway. Mm -hmm. And in between these two main thoroughfares that go up to all the main shopping centers and malls and all that sort of thing, you know, is CIA. And there are big signs along the highways on both sides that say CIA right here. If you're going to see it, turn right, turn left, you know, this is CIA. And it's, it, I mean, it's, it's known by that's everybody. That's kind of stupid, but. Well, yeah, but okay. I mean, that's how an institution <laughs> goes from an elite organization that was once hidden and, and it was never referred to as CIA on traffic signs to a point where now it's this huge institution and they're mm -hmm. proud to say, we're CIA and this is CIA headquarters right here. And if you want to come to CIA, pull right into these turn lanes and, and, you know, come to work, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's what's happened. But, you know, so right right off the get-go i mean you know with the whammy technology and surveillance technology from uh, satellites you know when i got in, i got in 1976 in 1975 the u.s government said our satellite technology was so good that it could photograph a license plate you know from space and that was 40 some years ago the chinese right. are the world's experts at surveillance technology now right so what do you think they can do now not to mention i just told you about whammy and stuff you know right. how it soaks up everything so so going in and out of cia headquarters doesn't make any sense anymore and mm -hmm. and putting people overseas in cover positions no matter what workarounds you think you have doesn't make any sense anymore but mm -hmm. there is a way you can do that and, and it has to do it has to be a way it have nothing to do with cia have nothing to do with the intelligence community this is one of those times in history where the president of the united states has to realize we need a new kind of a radically new kind of spy service and i don't want to wait seven years for you to bring in a crop of, of, of recruits and get to the point where they know what they're doing i need people who can tell me what's going on in these countries now right so how do you do that well i was going to say they'll start a task force first and they'll well, study that's it that's what cia with, will with do. an outside agency for yeah. 20 years <laughs> but that's that, that's what cia will do because that's what all government agencies do right Let's form a study committee, and that will go two or three years. And then that let's will help report our study, studies uh, to Congress, and then the congressman will say, "Well, yeah, but that doesn't seem to solve these problems." And they'll go back and study it another five. Uh -huh. But mm -hmm. there is a way to do it, and the way to do it is you've got to get back to the elite, the way of thinking of for elite organizations, and mm -hmm. you've got to get back to thinking a very simple concept: we need to solve a problem. See, if you're not trying to solve a problem, if you're trying to to maintain an institution. If that's your problem, that's a whole different kind of problem. But if your problem is we need, you know, relevant intelligence for the president of the United States and his policymakers, that's the problem. We need to solve it. We need to solve it now. How do you do that? Well, you can do it. And that here's the way you do it. You probably watched movies, you know, maybe with Kevin Costner in it or, you know, uh, you know, whoever. And, 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 and he's a sports talent scout. Right. right? And the sports talent scouts are just, 
old guys with cigars and you know hats and their jackets and they don't go around with you know anything saying sports talent scout they're guys who know sports like the nfl comes comes to you and you know janet you've been you've been studying football and your parents your dad was a big football nut you know more about your dad than football and, and they come to you and they say okay janet i know you're going to be out and you're going to be looking at these junior high school and high school and junior college and college athletes and and you know, guys and playing ball in sandlot and and you're looking for talent and i need a, a really good tight you know tight end and a uh, receiver and I need a guard and and if you can find me a good quarterback I'm always interested in quarterback right so you go out and you start doing your thing and you bring your notebook or your recorder and you go to that junior high school game you go well you know for a young kid I mean that guy shows a lot of promise so I'll note him down and I'll keep looking at him for a period of time and this high school guy whoa look at that arm or look at how he can run you know or look at how far he can pass and that guard just stands there and nobody can get around him, you know. And then you go on, you go to junior college and you go to college and you see similar guys. And then you and people like you that have been hired by the NFL come back and uh, you sit around a table and you show your film of these guys and you, you give your opinions of these guys. And NFL looks at all that and they say, I like this guy. I mean, that guy just got style. I mean, not only is he good, but he's got style. But I really like this guy, too. And at some point they choose. And they go up to this kid and they, you know, they say, how would you like to be a football star? You know, mm -hmm. and that's how they do it. Right. But what have you, what have you done there? You've, you haven't trained anybody. You haven't put him in a fortune 500 company to learn his trade. He already knows his trade. He's right. already good at what he does and he's real good at it. And he practices every single day and nobody's ever heard of him. Nobody's you know, not on anybody's radar, but he is one hell of, a, uh, of an asset. So imagine if you had, you know, a guy like me, but not me because I'm already burned as a CIA officer, you know, so you got to get somebody who's outside of the system. So this whole thing has to be done outside the system, right. but you create a situation where outside of the system, don't go anywhere in the beltway, nowhere near Washington, DC, nowhere near CIA headquarters or any other intelligence agency, maybe up in Poughkeepsie, New York, you know, or, or little, little drain Utah or, you know, wherever mm -hmm. it's going to be, you know, mm -hmm. and you form this group and these guys are businessmen. Right. And there that's might be what I was thinking it would have to yeah. be. And you have somebody who, who, you know, maybe knows intelligence at some point who can get these guys away from all that Washington DC mess and explain the concepts to them. And so you form these units and, a guy like Brian Fairchild, who's not Brian Fairchild, but, you know, a, a former businessman who worked in Zambia. Hell, I worked in Zambia for 10 years and and I was married to a local and I know everybody there. I've been trying to sell Montana beef there for all this time. And I've got a, an existing network and I know about the tribes and I'm good with tribes and, and you know, all this sort of thing. And all of a sudden mm -hmm. that guy goes out and he starts going to Burundi and, and Zambia and and uh you know south africa and you know all over africa i'm just picking africa as a as a place right. and really the re the reason is that my book was in zambia so i'm just using africa as an example but this guy goes and he and he you know he knows all these people in the international chamber of commerce he knows a lot of these businessmen he goes there on a good reason you know he's doing something for you know his own boss or whatever and he's looking for that talent Right. And he finds a guy that may be, uh, 
he served in the army but you know serving in the army doesn't make a counterintelligence service immediately go oh he's a spy because so right. many americans have served you know numerous tours especially these days right. you got guys who have been on deploy 10 deployments right you know, and they're turned down they got ptsd and they got divorced but they they're over there you know so mm -hmm. but maybe you find a, a few businessmen scattered around who've got these already existing networks excellent what they do working in an area that make most grown men cry and they can survive and thrive in it and then you find out you know and he's got a military background so everything indicates that he's a loyal american you keep looking into his background you do background investigations all the stuff we can do with computers now and at some point when that guy comes back to his home state to see mom and dad or whatever you run into him and you say hey aren't you brian fairchild don't you live in zambia Oh yeah, that's me. Do I know you? No, but I've got a proposition for you. Mm -hmm. you know, and you do it that way, right? And you only do it to those people that you think you've got an excellent opportunity and excellent possibility of having that guy say, yes, I'll help you. You know, And now he doesn't all of a sudden become a spy that goes into a cover office. He is the businessman and his spine mm -hmm. just comes naturally to him. Because if you want to know well, what is the government going to do with, you know, is the government going to create a new air base in Zambia? All you got to do is go to your tribal friends who have been hired as as laborers who are clearing off this huge tract of land and you've got a pretty good indication right and right. you've never had to go to the chinese embassy you never had to go to any embassy not the american embassy or anywhere else you just have your own network and then mm -hmm. you talk to the chiefs of the tribe and they don't like the government because the government's getting in bed with china and they you know and they have a lot of deaf people and all of the government regards your deaf people as being retarded or crazy or, you know, something. And, you know, mm -hmm. and, and maybe maybe the guy's cover or another guy's cover could be as a uh, an American Sign Language, you know, teacher who will go and set up schools in the Bemba heartland. You know, Bemba is one of the big tribes in Zambia. And you can set up schools throughout the Bemba tribe, uh, tribal area. And that gives you access to all those areas. Right. Mm -hmm. And then you get to be known as a guy who's, you know, they think is is teaching retarded people. So right away, they don't think you of you as a threat, you know, but you've got all these deaf people who are really sharp. Now we can speak a language that nobody else can because right. they've never been formally taught. So they've come up with their own language. And so maybe something like this to them means blue hippo. Mm -hmm. And blue hippo is like, what does that mean? And it's because... When they went out on the streets when they were kids and they saw their very first excavation of a underpass there mm -hmm. was a big sign with a blue hippo showing the construction company that was doing that above and they they associate blue hippo with an underground facility mm -hmm. see what i'm saying so right. there's no counter counterintelligence service in the world that could figure that out so if all of a sudden you have a network of all these folks that are using sign language but not any sign language that anybody's ever come across and they they're th think they, they're thought of as a as a shunned group anyway mm -hmm. you can get secrets left and right and be reporting back to your your policymakers what's going on and the counterintelligence service doesn't even think about you you're right. no threat you know so it can be done and, and it's got to be done by something like that but for that to happen CIA has to say, we're obsolete. We can't handle this. And like Fairchild says, we can't run it from here because anybody who gets associated with us is now you know, touched and covered with, with digital dust right. you know, and all that sort of thing. And so we got to do it 
completely different. And the president signs a, you know, signs a document saying, I'm creating this new organization. He's going to keep it tightly held with just the intelligence, uh, uh, you know, intelligence committee members that absolutely have to know. And now you have a new elite organization that can give the president, you know, the secrets that he needs. Now, do you, do you think it should be under governmental control and regulation, or do you think it would be better as a privatized organization? Well, it's, it's got to be. Well, I mean, you could do the privatized organization, but privatized organizations are, aren't really private. I mean, they're contracted to the U.S. government, right? I mean, no matter what organization you are, I mean, you, you know, you can't have really a private intelligence service because your product has to go somewhere. Right. So who's it going to go to? Well, the people who need it are the military, you know, and and the government. Right. So so it can be, you know, it, it's it's going to be hard to do. I mean, there's no doubt about it. But if it's mm -hmm. something that's worthwhile, then you you make sure you do it, whether it's you know hard or not. And it's hard to become a Navy SEAL. It's hard to become a SEAL Team 6 guy. But if you want to do it and put the work in, you can do that. Right. So, you know, I don't think it would work very well as a quasi-government agency, but it's got to be a totally secret, you know, government agency and not mm -hmm. yet an institution. And there's got to be an understanding when you go into it that at some point people are going to find out and right. we're, going to have to, we're going to have to morph yet again. We're not going to allow ourselves to become a big institution that everybody winks about and knows about and refers to Poughkeepsie, you know, like they used to refer to Langley. You know, if that's going to happen, then you got to, so you got to have the ability to morph. But that's one of the things that in this new new era with all of our technology morphing and becoming something else and reinventing yourself is happening all the time. So right? I kind of feel like that's what um China for one and India are doing kind of on their own infiltrating like all of our business sectors and stuff and getting you know information on our power grids and Oh, yeah. And things like that. And and this is the perfect cover because everything is so uh, culturally driven or we have yeah. to be PC and accept this, 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 and this. We have to have a hiring yeah. quota of this many people of this nationality or group yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And that opened the door for corporate espionage. Oh yeah, in a big way. I see China. China is a a unique nation among nations, and I worked against the Chinese. I was like I told you, I was in China. Mm -hmm. I lived in China and served in China, and China is unlike any other enemy we've ever had in our whole history. Mm -hmm. And the Chinese view of espionage is so far out of kilter with what normally was considered espionage. Right. I mean, they use everybody, right? So the Chinese have this, you know, this concept of unrestricted warfare mm -hmm. and they follow that, right? So that every, so every entity in China belongs to China. Right. right? And every entity in China by Chinese law, if asked, has to tell the Chinese government, all its secrets and what it's doing and all its business contacts and all that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So basically speaking, when, you know, anybody coming from China as a foreign businessman, as a foreign diplomat, as a student, as a researcher, as a tourist, you know, any way, I mean, China, the Ministry of State Security can secund any of those people to become spies for it. 
-hmm. you know, and they'll have whole programs. And then they have the United Front Work Department, you know, which apparently you know, appears to people as a cultural institution trying to make people understand the culture of China. And stuff, right. But right. By the Ministry of State Security. And they, those are the organizations that have set up these you know, police departments in the United States and other foreign countries. So they mm -hmm. use everything at their at their, you know, at their hand. Right. And, and they do it better than anybody else. And so the FBI, which is used to looking at going just like everybody else, going to that embassy because the Russians are there. All the Russian spies are there, except for a few Russian illegals, they call them non-official cover guys in the so Russian system are called illegals. So, you know, you know that there are illegals, you know that there are you know, guys in the embassy and the FBI will set up on the, those embassies or set up in places where they know the guys, nor the, the Russians normally go, and they'll try to catch them that way. But how do you catch, <clears throat> you know, what do you do when you have 50,000 or more, you know, 50,000 Chinese researchers, you know, working one-on-one -on -one in the most elite university research programs, mm -hmm. you know, uh, in the world. And, you know, a lot of those guys are stealing your secrets and reporting back to the MSS. How do you deal with that? Because you, you need a lot of these people because we don't have people who can fill those positions. Right. I mean, China graduates, you know, like 10 times more engineers than we do every year, mm -hmm. you know? And so they come and they've got, they've got the ability to contribute to American research but if they're stealing stuff from me at the same time, what right. do you do? Yeah, I mean, it's really a difficult situation. But we allowed that to happen. Right. And, and we allowed it to happen because we got greedy. And China, you know, I mean, if, if you know, all these, these businessmen think, you know, if they sell widgets, if they could sell one widget to every Chinese on the mainland, their families would be filthy rich for generations. And they never have to worry about anything else. And mm -hmm. that's a big draw. Right. Right. So, you know, so that's why, you know, American businesses, you know, just fawn all over it. And like you saw two weeks ago when Xi Jinping was here in San Francisco first, you know, after years and years and years of disgusting filth and homelessness and oop on the street and, <laughs> and needles and everything that they, they, they make it all look pristine. And then Xi Jinping comes. And then after he's done with his official stuff, all these Fortune 500 CEOs not only fawn all over him, but give him a standing ovation. Right. Absolutely. So that gives you a, an, a, you know, that shows you the assumptions that this administration is working under. China's not an enemy. China's not a threat. I don't want to have any war with China. I don't want to have a cold war with China. We're just competitors. We're just going to compete. And even though China, you know, walks all over us every single day. Mm -hmm. the, the, the assumption is that they're not the bad guys. And as long as you've got that, you can't have policy that, you know, that counters the Chinese because there's no reason to counter the Chinese because they're not the enemy. Right. right. And so that's how difficult this guy foreign policy is difficult in any any era. And we just don't do it very well. You know, yeah, I don't do, but we don't, you know, and we we did a, a good deal back in World War II because the rest of Europe was completely decimated and we weren't attacked except for, you know, Pearl Harbor. We weren't attacked on our shores and our, you know, our economy thrived because of the war effort. And so we lucked out and we, you know, we were successful. We were on the winning side in World War II. And so we became this real, you know, powerful uh, country. But. From that point on, we've sort of been in decline because even when we were the only country in the world, the unipolar you know, power 
and nobody else had nuclear weapons and stuff, we couldn't keep it that way. We didn't even right. think about keeping it that way. You know, and so we let other countries build up and threaten us. And, oh, or uh, let's let's bring them in and give them a tour of yeah. our facilities and look how great we are and what we have and what we can do. Yeah, that's that's smart. And China, you know, I mean, uh, the American policymakers, you know, from from, you know, Kissinger and Nixon on, they they created this fiction or mm -hmm. what they hoped would be reality. Right. And that fiction was, well, if we can bring China into the family of nations, if we can get it to trade with us and then the rest of the world and they make money and they can modernize their economy and all this sort of thing, you know, they'll see the benefits of not being a rogue nation and we'll live in peace and harmony for the rest of our lives. Right. But China has never thought that way, you know, and China under Deng Xiaoping, who came to came to power in the 80s, in the early mm -hmm. 80s, right. you know, Deng Xiaoping's policy was let's really get good, but we'll keep it secret. You know, mm -hmm. we're going to, you know, we're going to go after things. We're going to get to be the best in the world at things, but we're not going to brag and we're not going to draw attention to ourselves. But now under Xi Jinping, Xi Jinping thinks that's not necessary anymore. He sees the United States in, de in decline. He right. sees it as the, 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 the divided states of America, you know, the dysfunctional states of America. Mm -hmm. He sees our military power waning. He's, you know, got, uh, and, you know, Janet, I mean, I mean, it, it, it's amazing how we let these guys grow up around us. They've right. got the biggest and best shipbuilding, you know, shipbuilding uh, uh, concern in the world. They're the largest, US, largest armed forces in the world, the largest Navy in the world, the largest uh, uh, Coast Guard in the world, the largest Marine mo uh, militia in the world, largest fisheries in the world. And they've created things and done things like they've developed hypersonic missiles that we don't have. And right. that our own, you know, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff says we can't defend against. And we're trying, you know, we actually created the hypersonic missile, DARPA, the Defense Advanced right. Research, Research Project Agency developed it. But then we got to the point where there was an end to history and nobody needed this stuff anymore. So we discarded it. But the Chinese picked up on it where we left off and they made it terribly successful and zoomed past us. And the Chinese are, are better than us at, at operationalizing AI, right? Right. We, because we're always going to be one step behind because we have we have privacy issues, we have freedom issues, we have, you know, we have laws that say you can't do things. We got FDA rules that say you got to test drugs in a certain way, you know, to make sure that they're safe for mankind before we're going to, you know, allow you to dispense with them and all this sort of thing. And China and Russia and North Korea and Iran don't have any of that stuff. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we hear our policymakers saying China's creating super soldiers because they're really big on biological engineering, right? And genetic engineering. And so the Chinese will go into that wholeheartedly and they might deform a number of soldiers and create little monsters or people who die. And they'll just go, oh, okay, that's the cost of doing business. So let's move those people aside. But that shows we learned something from that. So let's continue on that vein. And sooner or later, they'll develop, you know, some kind of a genetic deal, with, which makes mm -hmm. their stronger faster you know don't need sleep you know whatever you know so we always are going to be behind the you know the eight ball on this but we haven't even gotten to the point where you know business and policymakers have said and come to the consensus that china's a threat you know we talk about it there's a lot of talking heads you know pointing fingers and stuff but the fact of the matter is that two weeks ago you saw 
the best and the brightest of American leadership, you know, give Xi Jinping a no, mm -hmm. you, you know, human rights violator, right? You know, genocidal murdering leader, a standing ovation to show how much they want to do business with China. And as long as you've got that going, we're never going to be able to, to, to beat them because well, you got and to, I think it's got to start at the top. I think that's a lot of it too, is because it's, it's become such a bloated, like bureaucratic, bureaucratic system. And, and so like business minded that their sole focus is on money and what their partnerships could do. And when they started allowing um, like the Chinese programs at the universities where, where they were swapping trade secrets. I mean, we had, yeah, sure. we had a professor that got arrested a couple of years ago for, right. for doing that, you know, and, and so they set up those partnerships or they have partnerships. I came from the, from the medical field. So they have partnerships in the medical community, oh, absolutely. you know, and it's all about business arrangements or now we're letting in them into uh, power stations or uh, partnerships with the military or whatever, or yeah. let them be lobbyists. Yeah. Which oh, yeah. is, sure. which is they, one of the reasons why policy goes nowhere. And they've, been, they've been stealing us blind, Janet, for right. ever, ever since I've been on this earth, they've been stealing us blind and they've stolen our, our IP. They saw, you know, our, right. our, our best technical capabilities. They've stolen millions and millions of uh, files of dna on americans oh yeah you know, and, absolutely and say, how do they do that well you know covid 23 and me uh any of that yeah. stuff because every but, but, everything is online but even more direct than that is that what they did is once you know covid happened and you know they let covid spread from wuhan around the world right. then they created these little mini laboratories and they mm -hmm. brought these little mini laboratories, you know, because everybody's worried about it, right? It's like COVID. Oh, we got to stop this. We got so the Chinese said, "Well, we got these little mini labs, and we'll help you." And they set up mini labs all over the United States to take tests, which is taking your DNA, you mm -hmm. know, to see if you've got COVID. Right. And they stole all of that. Then they had these pregnancy uh, tests for American women. I mean, it wasn't like you know the Chinese government's here and and you come to this Chinese government also to take this pregnancy test. They created a product, but right. it's a Chinese product. And, and it's associated with the BIO, you know, Biological Institute organization or whatever that, you know, I can't remember the exact name of it in China, but it's all, you know, run as subsidiaries of that. And mm -hmm. so they, you know, all, you know, hundreds of thousands of American women, you know, are taking these pregnancy tests and sending them back into China. That's all DNA, you mm -hmm. know? And so, I mean, they've been collecting our DNA. They've been collecting every secret known to man. And in 2015, just to give you an idea, in 2015, they uh, they did a cyber attack on the uh, the Office of Personnel Management. Right. And Office of Personnel Management is you know, is stocked with information from security agencies around the country. Right. So when I had when I applied for CIA and anybody who applies for any kind of a a secret or top secret clearance, you got to fill out like a 25 page, you know, <laughs> life study, you know, Promise your first you are, where you lived, who your neighbors were, who your, who your parents are, right. who your brothers and sisters are, you know, if you had any difficulties ever anywhere, you know, that sort of thing. Right. And you turn that in and it's, I mean, it's like a book. Well, at, in 2000, between 2013 and 2016, but everybody refers to it as 
2015 to sort of make it easy. They stole 22 million of those files. Mm -hmm. you know, 22 million of those files. So from a spy's point of view, how can you use that? Well, you know who Brian Fairchild is because I served in China. They knew who I was in China. I mean, you know, you can't hide the stuff. You know, being under under official cover is just terrible cover. You know, so now they could look at my whole family. Right. And, what if, and then they can do backgrounds on my family. And what if they find a, a vulnerability in my family? Absolutely. Right? And that vulnerability, you know, my brother, you know, uh, you know, did something bad and he's embarrassed about it and he could be blackmailed on it. You right. know, but he and I are close and I tell him secrets and they recruit him and now he's a spy against his brother. You know, I mean, that's just one simple way of looking at it. Mm -hmm. But the DNA, they, you know, the more DNA they have, the more they can practice with DNA and CRISPR right. and all For these biological weapons. Yeah. And it's all. Yeah. It's all data driven, you know, so mm -hmm. they not only have 1.4 billion people that they control all the information of all those people, and all the blood samples and everything right. else about their country. Now they've got, you know, you know, hundreds of millions of uh, new data points from America and from France and from Germany. So it not only makes their biological uh, competition, you know, keener against the right. United States. To, to come up with new products and beat us to the mark and stuff like that, but they can be used against us in nefarious ways. Right. You know, absolutely. So, and, and like I say, we, as a, we've made the assumption in this country under this administration anyway, that China is not a threat. Right. And as long as we have that, you know, we're not going to be able to counter any of these things because the president will put a kibosh on it and say, no, I told you China's not a threat. I don't want you doing this stuff that risks our, close relationship that we're building, you know, and all this sort of thing. So, I mean, that's where we stand today, Janet. And that's my, there's story. some definite reasons why he wants to be friendly with China, but we won't get into that. Well, yeah. yeah. That's and, a whole and, other and that, story. And that may well be, <laughs> but, and I don't know, you know, and, and mm -hmm. so from an intelligence officer's point of view, you know, all I can say is that from an intelligence point of view, you know, we're not doing the things against China, you know, to counter China that we right. should. And there are reasons for that, no doubt. And maybe some of them are bureaucratic, some of them are institutional, some of them are jealousy in institutions, and some may be criminal. Mm -hmm. I don't know, but it's not happening. I can tell you that much. Right. And uh, and China just sits back and they have a big smile on their face, and they're you know because they've created the the new axis of evil, right? Right. Something that that the government is just they, the, the government doesn't want to say this because if they say it, they have to do something about it. Right. But in the in the press today, you know, I mean, it, well, let me give you this example. Over a year ago, a year ago, October, I wrote a paper. I mean, I don't just write fiction and stuff, but I write, you know, analyses, papers. Mm -hmm. And I wrote this paper and it was it was titled The New Axis of Evil, the Anti-American Military Bloc Led by China. Mm -hmm. And when I write these, I send them to the uh, intelligence community, all the intelligence committee you know, committees in Congress and specific, you know, congressmen and specific leaders around the world. And I send it in and I publish it and, you know, put it on Twitter and other places. Right. So right. I'm, I'm getting the information now because that's why I'm writing it. And I wrote this over a year ago and I, you know, just the, the title gives it away, the new axis of evil. Right. Mm -hmm. And in the paper, I, I, I go and I pretty much prove that China, Russia, you know, North Korea and Iran, are joined together in a strategic anti-American bloc, mm -hmm. you know, designed to unseat the United States from its world-leading position. Mm -hmm. And they all say this. 
you know, and even the U.S. government, even the White House admits that Russia says it and China says it and North Korea says it. Oh, I they're mean, just yeah. saying it. But, just but they, won't say say, it. they won't say that they've joined together in this block because they prefer to think that they can deal with these issues as separate issues. Right. And as separate issues, you might be able to deal with them. But like, that's not how it's happening. I mean, the new axis of evil at their timing and their behest and at their, yeah, you know, as a result of their plans, they cause situations for us around the globe. Like North Korea will lob a bunch of missiles over Japan and we react to that. We send a couple of barrier uh, carrier, uh, carrier battle groups up to North Korea. And then we do exercise in the area to show those North Koreans we're there and we can do stuff, you know, and then we're every day we're given, we're given, you know, Ukraine aid and we're, you know, scraping the bottom of the barrel, trying to find more ammunition and artillery shells to give them, you know, mm -hmm. but we're doing that. And then uh, we're worried about Taiwan and all the missiles China has along its coast. And, oh my God, what are we going to do there? And then we got the situation with Israel and Gaza and they've got our forces and our intelligence and our economic resources spread to the four winds, which is right. exactly what they want. Because none of these countries want to go to war with the United States, but they all want to wear us down to the point where we can't react anymore. We just don't have the ability anymore. Right. You know, right. We don't have the capability anymore. And so the Chinese, you know, the Xi Jinping and Putin and all the rest of them, they're sitting back with large smiles on their face and they're going, look at this, you know, we we're, we're causing the Americans to run around like chickens with their heads cut off and spend, 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 and more ammunition. And, and it just makes us better, you know, and sooner or later, we're going to wear those guys out and they're just going to, you know, draw back into the, you know, into, into the shadows and we'll rule mm -hmm. the world. And that's what their intention is. But unless you re recognize that and you address it and the president of the United States says, we are for we are we're against a four nation military alliance against us. So we have to up the money. We got to up the military capability. We got to up, 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 up. We got to do this as a national emergency. It's not going to get done. Right? You've got to you got to understand and define the problem before you can defeat it. And under Biden, that's not going to happen because right. you know, goes out of his way to appease the, you know, the, the whole the, not only uh, appease China, but appease the whole you know, new axis of evil. Right. I mean, remember, wait, 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 he's not doing anything against Iran right now. And they've been attacking our forces like over 100 attacks. But that's mm -hmm. part of the new axis of evil. He doesn't right. want to go up against any of those guys because then he'll have to deal with all those guys. Mm -hmm. And he just can't do it. You know, he just doesn't see himself doing it. He's not that guy. You know, right. so, so we're kind of in a world of hurt. So let me, before we close, I want to ask you a question. How emotionally draining is it um, to be a CIA officer to, to constantly, you know, have to be undercover, worry about, you know, staying in your in your right. lane and, and, and not blowing things while you're still trying to have a normal family life? Oh, it's it, it, it's it's tough. And like I say, I mean, I I don't know of offhand, I don't know of any case officer I know that has succeeded in having like one marriage. You know, I mean, it mm -hmm. it, it it you know it, it exacts a price, right? And especially if you're 
a motivated case officer. I mean, you know, you see this uh, the story on TV all the time. You know, the guy who's focused on his wife, I mean, on his uh, on his professional career and the family suffers and stuff. Well, it's exacerbated to the extent that you're not just living in, you know, Dayton, Ohio, you know, and the wife can go and join different clubs and stuff. You're, you know, you're in an embassy somewhere in Timbuktu and there are no clubs and there are no real recreational things to do and you know but you want to be a dutiful wife and and you know all this sort of thing so i mean that that can cause problems and and then you're in a situation like i was in a situation where uh we were under surveillance like 24 hours a day right so you figured your apartment was under surveillance your car was under surveillance both audio and video everywhere you went you were noticed you're white white in a you know a non-white country and you know, you just can't get away from it. And some people can't deal with that, you know. And so there have been suicides or attempted suicides by family members who just, you know, don't, can't do it anymore. You know, right. you just can't do it anymore. I mean, imagine if, you, if you're thinking, you know, uh, that you're being filmmaking love or going to the bathroom or disciplining your kids or, you know, whatever. And you know, that's okay. But, you know, if, if you're the kind of case author I was, you drive that from your mind. I mean, you can't focus on that or you go nuts. Right. And you, you know, you, you inform your, your wife and your, you know, well, you don't inform your kids, but you know, they, they do what kids are going to do anyway, but it's, it's tough. You know, it can be a tough life. And then, you know, and then if uh, for some reason you're in a war zone, you know, or the country becomes unstable and there are riots and things, and you know, you got to add that on. And right. then your husband can't come home to you and say, uh, well, honey, yeah, let me tell you what I did today. I had a bad day at work. Let me yeah, explain. I, I recruited <laughs> Mikhail Mikhailovich, you know, so he's a new spy for us. And and I, I did this and then I had to get into a fight defending this other guy. I mean, you can't do that. Right. Right. So how was your day? Oh, it was OK. Yeah, it's kind of rough today. You know, that kind of thing. So, you you, you know, there's some trust issues that can be built up there because what if all of a sudden you decide you're going to have an affair you know but you mm -hmm. just roll that into the all my operations i can't talk about you know that kind of thing i mean so it can be it can be a very stressful job there have you know there have been there have been successful relationships and there have been relationships where both the both spouses are cia officers you know and they're both assigned to the i would think that would be a easier i think so I think so. And I've known a couple of those couples and uh, and they seem to do OK. But, you know, I mean, marriage is, is difficult no matter, you know, relationships and marriage is difficult no matter what you're doing. You mm -hmm. know, but there can be that added, you know, that added problem if you're working undercover and you can't be open with your spouse. And, you know, I mean, it, it can be difficult. Right. Well, Mr. Brian, I had a beautiful conversation with you today. You so I learned some things. Um, and I am glad that you explained some things so that the listeners get a little different view, uh, than what they normally see of things. Sure. So tell people, um, is there anywhere that, that people can follow you if they yeah. want to? Yeah. Well, I'm on, I'm on Twitter. I'm uh, at Brian Fairchild for the number four. Uh, I've got my own website for my book. It's uh, uh, brianfairchildbooks.com. Uh, or they, you know, the book is called The Hidden, and uh, they can go to uh, freehiddenchapters.com, and that'll take you to the site on my website where you can read the uh, summary, the prologue, and the first two chapters of the book, you know, absolutely free. 
And then on that website, there, you know, there's my bio and some pictures of me going through the system and, you know, being a young airborne guy in Fort Benning and, you know, stuff like that. And when I first got my beret, I was a green beret and I, you know, I've got that on there. And, and then there's a, a, a media button where I've been on a number of, well, not only podcasts, but like uh, uh, documentaries and things like that. So, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, there's another button that, that is papers that I've written on terrorism or the, uh, you know, the new era of spying and, uh, you know, that, those kinds of subjects. So I mean, yeah. Congressional so, testimony is also oh, yeah, yeah, congressional available. testimony is there in the, in the bio <laughs> thing. So, so you know, right there. I mean, BrianFairchildBooks.com or uh, FreeHiddenChapters.com, and you can get to it. And the books uh, sold on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and Goodreads and you know those kind of places. So, so yeah, I'd appreciate you know anybody who wants to to you know check in and you know join my uh you know sign up for emails and stuff like that and i'd appreciate it that'd be great that would be a fantastic thing so listeners make sure you go and do that mr brian thank you again so much for such a beautiful and honest conversation i really appreciate it janet my pleasure my pleasure i'm honored to be on your program well i thank you very much so For me and for Brian listeners, have a good day and we'll see you next time.